Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's guest has played variations of his signature dirtbag character on The League, Parks and Recreation, and Brooklyn Nine-Nine. On Big Mouth, he plays a 12-year-old boy named Jay. Now, there's someone very special I want you guys to meet. Oh, uh, well, that's a pillow. No, 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 no. She's so much more than a pillow. Oof, maron. Don't you want to just stick your dick in her? Wait, what's that now? Jay, do you... Fuck the pillow? Yeah, my same question. Oh, yeah, guys. I fuck my pillow. (laughs) I'm sorry. My tone was off. Yes, I 100% fuck my pillow. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and this week I am joined by one of my all-time favorite comedic actors, Jason Mantzoukas. Like most comedy fans, I first took notice of Jason as Rafi on The League. But in the decade since that show first premiered, he has become an essential ingredient in countless shows and movies, perfecting a certain type of garbage human being who generally makes everything he's in a lot funnier. Remarkably, some of Jason's most nuanced work has come in Big Mouth, the animated show about puberty that premiered its fourth season this month on Netflix. We go deep on this episode about that performance and how he managed to put together one of the most consistently funny comedy careers of his generation. So let's get right to it. Here's me with Jason Mantzoukas. So have you been doing a lot of recording from your closet? Yeah, you know, it really is. It's I, I'm very lucky that, you know, for a good portion of my workload, voiceover, animation, podcast, etc., I'm able to do it from home. You know, I, they just sent me, you know, a better microphone and, you know, I had to download a couple of things. But yeah, for, for the most part, I've been very lucky that a, a lot of that work has been able to continue throughout this kind of miserable, you know, nine, 10 month period. Yeah. So I was just uh, I was just watching you uh, the other day or yesterday on um, the guided meditation that, that Big Mouth hosted. Oh, yeah. Were you there? I was nice. I was there for that. And uh, so, yeah, first of all, how'd you get roped into that? Was that a, that was a, a Netflix thing? Kroll asked me to do it. <laughs> he was like, hey, we're going to do this thing in place of a junket. Yeah. Uh, and it's just going to be kind of would you would you be open to just come in and just like honestly just riffing on this idea of a guided meditation. I was like, oh, yeah, sure, absolutely. Yeah, well, it's very funny. Oh, good. That, that's the that's my whole thing, is anytime that the the thing seems like it could be a setup for something funny to happen, I'm, I'm always happy to be there, you know? Especially yeah. when it's Nick and Maya and me, that's, that's easy. Um, at one point during that, I think it was Nick mentioned that you've become kind of a hermit during, uh, during quarantine. Was that... Was that a joke or was that where some some truth to that? Oh, no, that's very true. I am being very conservative in Mm. this quarantine. I have really, for better or worse, I really have. I've become, I've erred on the side of being like a shut-in for all intents and purposes. You know, like I I live alone. um, And so, and I'm very, this is, you know, uh, uh, in a lot of ways, 
my personal worst case scenario, mm-hmm. you know, uh, pandemic specifically, yeah. is like, you know, it's it would be as if you had an, a crippling fear of flying and then we're in a plane crash. You know what I mean? Like, you know, uh, my, my because actual... Because you're a hypochondriac or because... Yeah. 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 Because I think just, yeah, I think because of my hypochondriac, I think because for my whole life, like health problems seem to have been... Um, uh, uh, woven into the fabric of who I am. Mm -hmm. And so I already feel susceptible to germs, colds, viruses, all this stuff. So I feel like, oh, well, now this is, this is my whole thing. I'm, you know, (laughs) I've been, this is the fucking worst. So for me, it really has been, I have, I think, you know, to be quite honest, overcompensated and have really, like, I I, I don't see people, you know, except for maybe very distanced, Mm -hmm. masked, you know, sitting in the backyard or something. But I don't, I haven't been to anybody's backyard dinner parties. I haven't been to, I haven't been inside any stores or anything. It's, it's, I'm I'm very rigid. Do your friends think that you're overreacting or? Very much so. Yeah. And they're not wrong. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. They're, they're not wrong. I, you know, I will always counter and say, if everybody did what I'm doing for six weeks. This thing would be gone, yeah. This thing would be so, so close to gone, yeah. it would be crazy. If if everybody just did what I'm doing, uh, if or if, more specifically, if everybody did what I'm doing in March, yeah, we really wouldn't be where we are right now. We wouldn't be having, you know, we're recording this, you know, December 8th. We're having two to 3,000 people a day die of this. I know. You know, and that is... These are the now, these are the numbers that were preventable. Yeah. We're now past the threshold. If we'd, if we'd responded appropriately at the beginning, this is what this podcast is about, right? Right. Yeah, totally. This uh, this is (laughs) pandemic talk, right? With Matt. Exactly. So the bummer is I'm still acting like, oh, if I just do this for a little while, we're going to get through it. And Mm. the rest of the country is like, no, 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 we're not going to do that. We want, we want (laughs) chaos. Yeah, I mean, as you said, you know, you're you're lucky that you a lot of the work that you do is you're able to do from home, including uh, recording voiceover for animation like Big Mouth. Yeah, I'm such a big fan of the show, and oh, I really really enjoyed this new season a lot. Watched it, of course, way too fast when it came out, which I think is what most fans of the show do. I love that. I love that Big Mouth is a show that people don't let linger. No, it's like impossible. Yeah, you, everybody seems to just burn <laughs> through it, and that's that's awesome because yeah. that's how I feel about my favorite shows yeah so with big mouth was this season already finished basically when the quarantine happened and yeah but you've been working on future seasons in the meantime yeah yeah exactly exactly so we had already recorded season four and it was out to animation yeah uh when the quarantine hit or when covid hit but we were in the process of doing season five so the real change is in in the writer's room in the writer's room rather and also in our recording uh, setups uh, will be uh, we're almost all of season five and then some little bits of season four just like little ADR yeah, lines here or there things exactly in the before times would you record with um, the people that you're in the scene with a lot for the most I know part. some animation does that and some doesn't yeah well one of the things about Big Mouth that's great is it primarily is a group of friends you know like uh, yeah. Nick you know Nick and Andrew and uh, Mark and Jen really wonderfully cast like people who all have not just known each other for a long time but have worked together many times in different iterations so there is a lot and a lot of people have a pretty strong improv background. Yeah. So it is not uncommon, yes, to get 
me, Nick, and Jesse in a studio together if we have the scene together or whatever iteration of people necessary so that we can open it up and and find new you know new paths to a joke new jokes we can we can play around and be a little bit messier uh if you mm. do it one by one you really are for better or worse stuck in the script you know yeah. uh you can't really you can't dynamically alter something in the moment you have to be like oh i have a pitch on this but it's going to require you to then when you record with <laughs> yeah. this person remember to change their line to this so that my new line makes sense yeah and it or be- if they already recorded then they have to go then back they, then and, they yeah. have to exactly so it's a bit it's it can be more of a headache and and uh big mouth big mouth is a looser kind of shaggier show in that way. You know, it's very joke dense, um, mm. which is wonderful. And a lot of that comes from the kind of numerous cumulative processes that go into the making of a Big Mouth episode from mm-hmm. the writer's room to a table read to recording sessions to each each iteration of the animation we receive back animatic to, you know, there's like uh, there's there's a radio play. There's an animatic. There's like multiple stages at each stage you can go back in and tinker as opposed to live action, which you really don't have that many opportunities to tinker. So it's great. You know, we're we're really given a lot of freedom and latitude to to make scenes or jokes or beats work as best as possible. In season four, so many of your scenes are with Lola, who's of course played by Nick. Yeah, and uh, I love that your dy- your new dynamic with Lola. Oh, Lola and Jay. What are those scenes like to to record with Nick? Oh, so fun. So funny. Those were hilarious. I mean, like, I'm sure somebody recorded stuff, like video recorded stuff at some point. Yeah. But just Nick and I in a booth just doing Lola and Jay sex scenes, just crying, (laughs) laughing, like all the fingering stuff, everything. You know, it's always fun. You know, we we've been performing together for, you know, so so long so mm-hmm. it really is a delight to get to do stuff with him and the Lola and Jay storyline the romance of it because they're also like I really loved that story because it really gave these two broken lonely misfit melancholy kids like a partner you know it gave them a teammate someone they felt seen by because they're both yeah. the person in their friend group who is constantly being dismissed, you know, or not yeah. thought of or not invited along or whatever. And so so that they could find not just each other, but that they could find, especially in like the Lola and Jay, the Halloween episode, rather, with the Serge Gainsbourg, Bonnie and Clyde uh, song. <laughs> it's so great that they are like they can find a way to even though they're not able to participate, like they can have their own like incredible time it ends heartbreakingly yes but i don't know i love i really i loved that storyline it made me really happy for jay you know because i'm very it's so weird but i'm very fond of jay you know like i'm very mm-hmm. i'm very fond of him and feel very feel very uh very sad for him at times so <laughs> i'm very happy that he found lola I must admit, Jay, that a life of crime, personally speaking, has made me ravenous. Oh, yeah. Hey, babe, you ever think pancakes are sexy little beds for mice to, like, fuck on? Oh, my God, all the time. And the butter is obviously their pillows. Oh, my God, totally, babe. (laughs) Sexy little pillows that they just sleep on? We're on the same page. That's nice. Totally. (laughs) Yeah. Totally. Mm -hmm. Totally. Hey, Lola. Yes, Jay? 
I, I love you. Oh, thanks, Jay. You're cool too. Is there anything else you want to say, like back to me? Um, maybe the boysenberry syrup is their lube. What? What? For the mice who fuck on the pancake beds, doy. Oh, um, yeah, sh- sure, yeah. Um, will you excuse me for a sec? Um, suddenly my face is red and I'm mad at the world and I want it to end. Okay, I'm gonna order coffee as a joke. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's really funny. Yeah, I mean he's had he's had a, a great journey in this in these seasons so far. I mean I think he's changed a lot too and sort of become more complex, which is not maybe what people expected or that you even expected when you first started doing this show. So has that been surprising for you to kind of see where where the character where they take the character? Oh yeah, every season, you know, usually Nick and I will hike frequently here uh, in normal times. And as they start the writer's room up, or maybe a little bit beforehand as they're starting to have conversations, he will kind of be like, oh, the, you know what we're starting to think about or what somebody suggested was, and so I'll start hearing percolations of ideas for Jay or for stories or for whatever. And so it's always exciting to be on those hikes and hear like him being like... uh Oh, we're thinking, we're considering that Jay will become bisexual this season, that he will realize his bisexuality. And I was like, I love that. This is incredible. You know, like that you're going to take this kid who is this horny little monster and you're going to really open him up because he was so, in those early seasons, so clearly focused on just like pounding out that pillow, you know, and a lot of pillow action. Yeah. Yeah. And so to really kind of open him up and to really kind of give him a broader perspective on himself and because he's also deeply unself-aware. So to track Jay's journey into becoming more self-aware and becoming more, you know, in touch with or aware of his emotions rather than just careening between you know, hyperbolic reactions to things, you know, has been really fun and wonderful. I know a lot of the storylines in the show come from the writers' actual lives or stories that they heard or people from them growing up. Is there anything from your adolescence that's that's made it into the show? I'm trying to think. Not entirely. My ca- Jay is based on, like most of the characters, Jay as well as Jesse and obviously Nick and Andrew are based on a group of friends that Nick and Andrew Goldberg grew up. Mm-hmm. And so I am based, I think, on two of their friends, one of whom did close-up magic, and I think one of whom fucked the pillow. <laughs> I, I think that's the right yeah. separation. So so a lot of those kind of formative components of Jay are not based on me. It's not based on, like, my childhood, nor was I raised, like, in a feral atmosphere or anything like that. But I certainly knew... <laughs> a lot of kids who lived Jay's life, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, I was like, I was, I think I said early on in one of those things, I was like, I feel like Jay's one of those kids that I knew whenever you went over to their house, like the kid was never wearing a shirt. <laughs> like they were like, they were just like a shirt free house. And like yeah. that has found its way into Jay. Jay is, <laughs> whenever he's home, he's wearing cutoffs and no shirt. Doesn't matter. You know, you mentioned that you've known Nick for so long and have worked with him in so many different ways. Um, when did you act, when did you actually meet 
Nick and what were your sort of first impressions of him? Huh, I'm trying to think. I don't, I, you know, I, I don't know when I first met him. It was certainly in the UCB slash New York comedy scene of the early 2000s. I'm like a step older than Nick. So mm-hmm. I got to New York in the late 90s. Nick got to New York a little late in the early 2000s. And then he was around. He was a stand-up. He he went through the UCB system, but he was also like a uh, like a one of the young stand-ups who was kind of doing shows at Rafifi, and they were like you know that whole crew was around. So I'd met him certainly, but we started becoming friendly. We were both in LA on a during pilot season one year. Oh yeah, when very few people were. Uh, we still lived in New York, but we're in L.A. for pilot season. And we we hung out a couple of times in L.A. Maybe those weren't our first actual hangouts, but those were the first, like, meaningful hangouts where we, like, I feel like was the beginning of us being friends, not just kind of comedy acquaintances, in other words. Were you going on a lot of uh, auditions during that pilot season? Yeah. Like, for example, like Nick and I were both in the waiting room for cavemen. Yeah. We auditioned for cavemen at the same time, you know. <laughs> He got it. I did not, thankfully. Yeah. How did you How did you feel about that at the time versus how do you feel about it now? <laughs> oh, I felt fine about it at the time because it <laughs> seemed, even at the time, I was like, I you know, the, and it proved true. Like I, I was like, I don't know. That seems like a tremendous amount of like m- like prosthetics and makeup, yeah. which seemed to me to be like it's going to be hard to be funny inside of that, you know. And it it seems like that is the case. Like it seemed it seemed like it was very difficult just on a practical level, you know. Yeah, four hours of makeup every morning and like two hours to take it off or something like that. Uh, tough, tough. <laughs> Did you feel like you came close to getting things and didn't get them, or it's like you didn't even come close? The first year, I didn't even come close. You know, the first year, I didn't come close to, I don't think, anything. Yeah. I think the second year, I think I tested for one show. And a test is like when it's down to, like, you know, you and a handful of other people, Mm -hmm. rather than... You know, we saw 60 people for this role. We've widowed that down now to these four people. And I think I tested for one show that second year, didn't get it. Um, the next year, I don't think I tested for anything again. Like, it was it was like there was a lot of dry years. But a lot of dry years where I was in some ways getting acclimated to how the system worked and was acclimating casting directors to who I was and what I did so Mm -hmm. that there came a point when people I think started to figure out like oh you know this I I understand now who Jason Manzoukas the actor is I think he would be right for these parts because a lot of times I would be auditioning for parts that I wasn't necessarily right for yeah but would nonetheless be in the mix Coming up, the part that changed everything for Jason and why he's struggled to break out of that mold ever since. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. 
What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Yeah, I mean, it seems like from looking at your career that you really forged your own, you know, parts that you're right for and that people maybe started writing parts that were Jason Manzuka's kind of parts. I mean, when did you feel that start to happen? Like when I auditioned, the, I would say like the show that really was a, a pivot point for me or a tipping point in a Malcolm Gladwellian way is the league, obviously, is for the most part when people first really saw me, you know, even though I'd been on stuff here and there, really the league was, I feel like for the most part, when people really saw like... For most people, that's the first time they they clocked me. Mm -hmm. And that was because I did not get the part that I auditioned for, which was Andre, which was Paul Shear's part. Oh, yeah. So in the final set of auditions for the league, I was auditioning for Andre. I had also auditioned for Pete, Mark Duplass's part. I didn't get it, right? Those guys all got it, and they made season one. But the Schaefers, who created the show, really liked me. Uh, and because the show was improvised, they wanted improvisers. And so they were like, we want you to come in on season two just to play this character. Uh, we, don't, we don't have the character yet, but we have the plot. We know what the story is. The story is your Nick's brother-in-law. He wants to have you join the league so that he can look good to his wife. Uh, mm -hmm. And that will own him. That will get him wife points. Um, but the league guys are going to hate him. And then it'll go on for like two episodes. And then in the third episode, they're going to kick you out. And that was supposed to be it. That was supposed to be it. And so then they were like, what version of that are you interested in? You know, like, how do you want to do that? And so in, in, in a lot of ways, like, I would say I am known for playing a lot of you know, kind of crazy, maniac, wild-eyed characters. And that is because a lot of people first saw me on this show because I said to them, I was like, the role you, it's a, it's a great ensemble, but the role you don't have is a maniac. Yeah. You know, you just, you, that's what you don't have. So I happen to play a very good maniac. I'd been playing, I'd been playing a version of Rafi in one of the sketch shows St. Clair and I did. I'd, I'd been playing mm -hmm. that type of a guy for a while. So, so I was like, yeah. I can come in at this. I was like, I would like to come into your show as unbridled id. Like a, a a man who is just cons like consuming anything and everything in his path, you know, and mm -hmm. they were like, great, let's do it. Um, and so for me, that was like a real moment because people saw that role, I feel like, and then were like, almost immediately, I started getting more work as an actor in similarly unhinged performances, you know, or or yeah. wild or weird or whatever, you know, like that's how I get to be on Modern Family or that's how I get to be on all of these other shows at the time is because of is be, I, I think because people saw me on the league and were like, oh, I I can play with that, that flavor or that 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 song or whatever I can t I can mm -hmm. that would complement my show, too. You know, was there any double-edged sword nature to that in the sense that you're getting 
stuck in that in that type or that only getting to play one thing? Absolutely, for sure. And you know, and and definitely, there are roles that I did or took in order in order to kind of deviate from that. You know, like or, or things that I think were like uh, like my role in the dictator is the straight man. Sasha is the wild, outrageous kind of uh, character who can't control his appetites. And I am the person who is constantly trying to ground him, you know, and make him see reality. I'm the voice of reason in that movie. So there's there's stuff that I've done, certainly, that uh, attempts to get away from that. But I also, there is, I, I mean, like, like Jay on Big Mouth. Like, there is real joy for me in playing characters who have no governors or who have no limits or who have no, you know, filters. You know, like, there's something wonderful about playing characters who can just exercise their emotions, their vulnerabilities, their their feelings at any point in time, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to ask about The Dictator, uh, mostly just because I'm fascinated by Sasha Baron sure. Cohen and uh, everything that he does. And uh, so I'm, I'm curious what it was like to work with him in that project that's like not a typical project for him and that it was a much more scripted comedy where he's you know not interacting with real yeah. people, but I'm sure also had some elements of, of his you know unique genius in there as well. So what was that like for you to, to work so closely with him? It was pretty incredible, actually. You know, especially even though I'd been doing comedy for a long time, it was still one of my early jobs. You know, it was like really mm-hmm. it, uh, jobs of significant weight, you know? Like, I'm yeah. in a lot of that movie, you know? Yeah, it was a big deal. Uh, and t- Yeah, exactly. To me at the time, it was a huge opportunity and an incredible deal because I was somebody who... You know, when when Sasha was doing the Ali G show in the UK, somebody on our improv team used to have videos sent from the UK to us so we could watch like not just and not just Sasha. So but we watched Ali G. We watched all the Chris Morris shows, Brass Eye, uh, Day Today, Nathan Barley, you know, all the early Charlie Brooker stuff, all of the you know, uh, Snuffbox, the, you know, Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. We were obsessed with British comedy. So I was already, like, deep in on Sasha, you know, and and mm-hmm. and thought he was a genius. So to work with somebody that I so looked up to and revered in a job that was, you know, fairly early on in my career was really incredible opportunity. Like, to be, because there's a lot of that movie that's just he and I. Yeah. And Berg Schaefer Mandel wrote it, who were, you know, such a powerhouse writing team. Jeff Schaefer created The League. Alec Berg helped create Silicon Valley and Barry. Dave Mandel took over and finished the last seasons of Veep. Like, these are like the heaviest of heavy hitters. Serious writers, yeah. And not just that, like, on set on any given day, there would also be... Peter Bainham, uh, Dan Mazur, Ant Hines, all of these incredible British writers that Sasha had come up with mm-hmm. uh, in the UK. So there was like, uh, you know, Adam McKay was there. You know, there was, we did a table read for that movie. This blew my mind. We did a table read for that movie before it was fully cast, just to kind of read it out loud and kind of get notes. And the people giving notes were like, you know, it was Gary Shandling and Larry David and Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg. And like, it was like yeah. the heaviest of heavy hitters That's wild. in the crowd. And I was like, this is incredible. Yeah. This is really exciting. It was 
Was that nerve wracking to, per- to to perform for all those people? You know, weirdly, it wasn't. I, you know, I felt pretty confident. I'm a pretty confident person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I felt pretty confident. And Sasha and I had already been working together. So I felt pretty good in our dynamic. So it was actually just a blast. Really fun. And so working with him was kind of incredible, you know, to watch on a process level, to work on that scale and scope was enormous. Like I'd never worked on something that was that big and expensive. And we would spend whole days shooting just one scene, you know, which I'd I'd Mm -hmm. never experienced before. You know, the league, we would shoot like (laughs) 13 pages a day or something, the the equivalent thereof. And we're sitting here, you know, getting like a page a day. Like it was really fascinating and interesting and super educational. And, you know, just to get to to work with him, Larry Charles, the director, was great. Larry Sher, the DP, mm. was great. Joe Reedy. I mean, like it was like everybody, like the, the first AD was like the first, these Scorsese's and the Coen brothers' first AD. It was like mental, you know? <laughs> ah, Nadal! We are just months away from refining weapons-grade uranium, and we are set to test the missile next week. Hmm. It is too round on the top. It needs to be pointy. Round is not scary. Pointy is scary. This will put a smile on the faces of the enemy. They will think that it is a huge robot's dildo flying towards them. No, Supreme Leader, the shape of the missile top has nothing to do with aerodynamics. It is about the payload delivery. No, it sticks in the ground, and then kaboom. Supreme Leader, I think perhaps some of your information about bombs is coming from cartoons. Nonsense. I have been watching research films. In this film, just one question, was there a duck who, when the explosion happens, his bill goes around the back of his head, and then in order to talk, he has to put it back this way? There was somebody who suffered a deformity like that, yeah. Okay. I am now 100% sure that you are watching cartoons. One thing that occurred to me with The Dictator, and I think this is something you've maybe talked about before, is that you've you've played a lot of different uh, ethnicities in your in your career and sort of in that one especially and then other things as well. And that's something that's come up uh, you know, in the conversation around the new season of Big Mouth with the um, the Missy character and, and Jenny Slate's decision to, you know, stop uh, playing that character who's uh, mixed race. And I'm just curious if that discussion, because I know you've probably had to talk about it and people, it, did, it, did it make you think at all about your own choices in your career and sort of what you, if you would do anything differently or moving forward or, or any of that? It's such an interesting conversation right now. Yeah, you know, I've played a lot of other ethnicities, um, mostly because people will only cast me as other ethnicities. Um, (laughs) I'm in this weird middle ground where I won't be considered for the white lead role. Mm -hmm. I I had a casting director sit me down once and say, hey, Now, this was before I was really having any success. She said, hey, I really just want to have, I just want to tell you something just so I don't want you to be discouraged. She was like, you're not going to work for a while because people don't know what to make of you. You are, Mm. and I'm paraphrasing now, but she basically said you are, you're not handsome enough to be the lead, but you're too (laughs) handsome to be his schlubby friend. And you're not Mm -hmm. white enough to be the lead, but you're also not an actual ethnicity to be cast as a diversity hire. So she's Mm -hmm. like, you're not going to get 
hired anywhere. You're not like you're going to fall through all the cracks. Like you can't nobody you you don't you don't check any box. You don't make any sense. Right. Really. Right. Mm -hmm. She's like, but you're very talented. You're very funny. So I want you to like, no, you're going to work. It's just going to take people kind of bending something to fit you. And uh, they're going to. So it's going to take a while. And it did. That was like. It took years after that before I started working. Um, and a lot of it is because this uh, I don't I don't appear to be what people consider as a traditional white guy role, right? I don't look yeah. like that. What I look like is a traditional diversity hire role, but I am in fact mm-hmm. not that. So <laughs> I'm yeah, it's complicated. I, yeah, this is where we get into a whole conversation about race and and what mm-hmm. what all this means. That's a very strange and uncomfortable conversation to be having. But yeah, I mean, like the, the that role in the dictator should that role have been played by somebody? You know, the the listen, it's a country that's not real. It's a it's a fake Middle yeah. Eastern country. Should my role have been played by someone of Middle Eastern descent? Probably. Yeah. But if you're going to say that, then you have to say the same thing about, you know, Sasha Baron Cohen. Yeah, of course. So that's kind of the once you start pulling the string of that sweater, at a certain point, the dictator just can't be made, you know, in the way it's envisioned as a vehicle for Sasha Baron Cohen, you know, and his particular brand of humor. You could certainly write a movie, uh, you know, in that world, but it's not a Sasha Baron Cohen movie, if that makes sense. I've been very impressed. This is sort of related that you've been able to keep your beard going for so long in so many different roles. And is that, is that something that you, that you've run into where people try to get you to shave it? Or is at this point, it's like comes part of the package. No, no question. It's the opposite. Like there's been a bunch of roles where I've said, Hey, if you want me to shave, if you want me to (laughs) shave it different, if you want me to do, you know, if you want me to just let me know. You know, and almost everybody says, oh, no, no, stay that. Keep it there. And, you know, a couple of people yeah. have been like, can we trim it to like a more, you know, in like um, sleeping with other people or there's a couple of other roles where I'm like a little bit more straight laced. Mm-hmm. But no, it, it really is weird. I'm not I I like having the beard, but I'm also fully open to shaving it, doing it differently, whatever, whatever people are, whatever people, whatever I think is good for a character or whatever someone on the creative side thinks would be good if they wanted to me to have a mustache or, you know, or have no facial hair at all. I'm fully open to it. Yeah. I like that. It's become a brand to the point where adult Jay in the future episode has your beard. It's so weird. Did you like that when you saw that for the first time? Of course. I loved (laughs) it. I, I was nothing made me happier. Yeah, that's a great episode, too. So I want to, if we can, just because you've been in so many things that I love, uh, just run through a few more of them. And if there's sort of a uh, a memory or, or story that comes to mind, if not, no problem. But if there is, that we could talk about. And one of the first is, uh, some, going way back, is Enlightened, which was, oh, yeah. I think, one of your, your first, was it, was it your first regular role on TV, sort of? Or was it? That and The League, I booked in the same period and they were both recurring roles yeah so they were both like they were both you know i can't remember what it was but they were both roles that i was in like you know three to five episodes a season of yeah and loved because i was such a fan of mike white's such a fan of laura dern's they had brought on from the pilot to the series they'd brought on uh miguel arteta 
to be the series director uh, along with other incredible directors. Like that was that was a case where working on Enlightened was like, oh, I'm getting to be directed by Jonathan Demi. I'm getting to be directed by Miguel Arteta. I'm getting yeah, to be like a like, little indie film every week. Really, and and it was incredible. You know, like the the way they the, the juxtaposition between shooting the league, which was real run and gun, <laughs> fully improvised chaos, yeah. to, you know, I'd be on set of Enlightened a couple of weeks later, and it was the exact opposite. Mm. It was very precise and very, you know, word perfect and very big camera moves, big setting up big dolly shots, stuff that we just never did on the league. So that really, the the doing both of those shows in that same time frame actually was hugely educational for me in terms of two different ways you can make wonderful television. Mm-hmm. The next one is Transparent, uh, which you kind of popped in in certain uh, episodes and later in the season seasons. Um, what was your experience like on that show? I loved it. It was great. You know, um, I'd known that they were making it. I knew some of the folks on it, and I was so I was so impressed by what they you know because I knew Jay Duplass, and I was just just in hearing what they were doing. I was mm. like, this is going to be. Fucking, because this was always also the beginning of Amazon. Mm-hmm. This was the beginning of really streaming stuff, yeah. right? These were early days. So it was really, I was so intrigued and curious. And so to be brought into it was very exciting. And then I had that wonderful thing happen where my part, very small, very kind of transactional, mm-hmm. but because they let me improvise, because they opened it up and because they let us improvise. We found such a funny, flirtatious dynamic between Amy Landecker and myself Yeah, that when we were done with just our little scene, they were like, well, I guess you got, I guess you'll have to come back next <laughs> season. You know, I guess, yeah, I guess you'll have to re- return so you guys can hook up, you know? <laughs> and then luckily they made that happen, yeah. you know? Uh, so that was a, kind of a wonderful, that's a wonderful example of like how the process allows for kind of something set to be kind of bl- blossom into something even even more rewarding, you know? Yeah. Did you lean into the flirting at all to, to make that happen or did that, that just happen naturally? It just happened organically. I didn't know, Amy Landecker, I didn't know personally. Mm-hmm. So we had just met and we're just chatting, she, Jay and I. Yeah. Um, and it was just fun. And because I feel, I felt very comfortable around Jay because I'd known him for years. So it, it was... I wonder if I had gone onto that set knowing nobody, I probably would have been more conservative. I probably would have just done the lines as they were mm-hmm. and and nothing much else would have happened. I would have appeared in that episode of Transparent. But I think because I felt, because I knew the creators and some of the people behind the scenes and because I knew Jay pretty well, I felt very comfortable in being loose and fun. And so improvising, once once they said they were okay with that, it was very easy to kind of mix it up uh, and, and mix it up with Jay and then with, starting with Amy and, and Amy being very excited and game to improvise. And it just fell into like a fun, flirty banter. And that became the hook of what would then kind of recur the rest of the time. Oh, let's see what we got here. Let's get down to brass tacks. <laughs> what do you think is the worst out of these things? Because you checked a bunch. Anxiety. Irritable bowel syndrome. Really? For such a pretty lady, 
Such yeah, an upset it's tummy. It's sort of hard to say. Like this weekend, I'm, I don't have my kids for the first time, like ever in their whole lives, because I had this recent separation and it's kind of, but it's like, I, but I, I don't really, I mean, I don't really feel that. But I, I don't know, like, I guess I'm like really revved up during the day. And then when I try to sleep at night, I can't get to sleep. But it being so funny, like, I am the happiest I've ever been in my <laughs> life. So this, like, totally doesn't make sense. And you seem very anxious. I do. Yeah. yeah I mean, I sexy, but anxious. Oh, thank you. So I have to ask you about I'm Sorry, sure. because one, it's my one of my wife's favorite shows. And she said, told me that I have to ask you about it. Of course. It's amazing. It as well, it's uh, heartbreaking. Also, Andrea Savage was uh, our first guest of this year. Oh, cool. And I believe you will be our last guest of this Bookends. year. Bookends. So there you go. Yeah. And you guys are great in the show together. Oh, thank you. So, yeah. Well, how did you how did you end up on that show, you know, in that sort of a relationship with her? Yeah, what's what's going on with the show? Well, the show the show has been canceled by True TV. Heartbreakingly so. They were that ready is heartbreaking. Yeah, they were ready to go into season 3. They were all geared up. Yeah, I think when I when I talked to her, she was in the writer's room and like things were happening. They had scripts going. They were gearing up to produ- towards production just as COVID shut it shut everything down. Yeah. Within the nine months of shutdown, it is one of the many shows that has been canceled as a result. There are so many. It's really it's really a bummer. Oh yeah. Oh, it's it's a real bummer. It's similar to how we're talking about a lot of these shows or a lot of these kind of things. It is trading on pre-existing friendships, really. Andrea Savage and I have known each other for years. We played husband and wife and sleeping with other people. Right, yeah. We've done other shows. We've done live shows together, like comedy live shows on stage. So, and we are also like part of a, a friend group that went on vacations together, that spent a lot of time together. So we we already had like a we already had that banter dynamic that is mm-hmm. In the show, that was our dynamic, you know, sort yeah. of, you know. And so when she started putting her show together, she was like, hey, I've got this part that's a writer, my writing partner, that can kind of just pop in and out if if you have free time. And so in a great way, when she was gearing up to do season one, I had a bunch of free time. So they wrote a bunch of those scenes for us. We got to do a bunch of stuff. And then in season two, during the time they were doing that, I was fully booked on something else. And so it was like, I really, I don't think I'm going to be able to do this. You got replaced by Scott Ackerman. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so it was, it, it was really lucky because, and this is, again, this Big Mouth operates in a very similar way. All the, a lot of these shows operate similarly in that we're, we're all part of a larger friend group. And it's kind of like, can you grab people when you can grab them, get them on your show for a little while to do something, and then and then they're going to ask you to do the same at some point. Someday, I'll have my show, and I will have Savage come on my show, you know, or whatever. You know, like, everybody, I feel like, I don't want to just label it as UCB because it's not UCB. Savage didn't, Savage came up in the Groundlings, you know. But the general improv sketch community I would say mm-hmm. in New York and L- LA is very supportive, very, very supportive, very, very support minded in terms of helping everybody make everything as good as possible, if that makes sense. Yeah. And then another one that I have to ask you about, um, because I think the fans of it would, would freak out if I didn't, is The Good Place. Yeah. That was sort of a departure from your typical part that you play. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like a true innocent. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to a <laughs> dirtbag. Yeah. Uh, yeah monster. Not, not a scumbag at all. A, a weirdo, yeah. for sure, but not a scumbag. Yeah. yeah. 
Was that fun to kind of do something different in that sense? Oh my God, so fun, incredible. And also um, one of the one of the truly best, one of the best things that when it happens is when I get to be a part of something I'm already a fan of. Yeah, it must be very strange. Yeah, I'd already seen season one of The Good Place. I watched it when it aired. I loved it, thought it was great. And then... I started hearing rumblings that there was a character they were working on that they were thinking about me for. Kind of just like loose kind of rumors. Oh, I was at, I was in a hotel somewhere working on something and Mike Schur called me and pitched me the character. And the character was mm-hmm. so crazy when he pitched it because <laughs> he was like, hey, I've got an idea that I want to pitch you for this character. And I was like, yeah, whatever you want, I'm going to do it. So, yes, the answer is yes, but please pitch it to me. And then he pitched me this character, which was Derek, you know, and you might know this or I've said this before, but the character's dialogue would be written. It would be Google translated into like Romanian. (laughs) Yeah. The Romanian would be translated into like something else, like Cantonese. And then the Cantonese Mm. would be retranslated back into English. And those would be my line. (laughs) So my lines had the had the tone or the tenor of meaning, but not they didn't mean anything. They were, you know, gibberish for the most part. That seems like it would be hard to memorize. It turns out very hard to memorize. <laughs> very hard to memorize because it was very difficult to be like, okay, I'm going to decide that this is the verb and this is where, okay, this is how I'm going to try and construct this for meaning, you know? Mm-hmm. So he pitched it to me, and I was like, everything about what you're saying sounds incredible. And the mm-hmm. fact that I was going to get to do all my stuff with Darcy Carden, who, again, I'd known, I've known for 15 years from UCB back in yeah. New York, I was like, absolutely, this is going to be a blast, you know? And so doing Derek, and then what I didn't know was that every season, Derek would be upgraded, you know? Yeah. So when I got the first script for the next season, and Derek is suave Derek in a tuxedo— I was like, whatever this is, I'm on board 100%. New thing, yeah. You must be Michael. Janet's made a lot of talk talk into my ear holes about you. Michael, 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 Kleichel, Kleichel, Kleichel. Janet, you can't make a person. I know, but I did, though. Eleanor said that to forget about Jason, I should create a rebound guy. So I made one. Derek. I'm her boyfriend, and she made me. He's so nice. (laughs) Whoa, look at this glass. Oh, my God. I'm in there, too. What's going on right now? So kind of just looking forward, um, you know, I know you have, you've been able, your work has been limited this year to, you know, podcasts and animation and things. Um, I really loved uh, The Long Dumb Road, which oh, was, you know, this, this big uh, leading role that you did in a movie, which is, you know, I think the only time you've done that. I would imagine that that experience made you want to do more stuff like that. How are you sort of looking ahead to, you know, when you, when you are able to work again, what kind of stuff you want to do? Um, is that, is that the kind of thing that you, that you're hoping to do more of? You know, a- absolutely. I had such an amazing experience making that movie. The co-writer and director, Hannah Fidel, Tony Revolori, uh, and myself in Albuquerque, New Mexico, making that movie was really a kind of incredible experience. And I, it's, it also happens to be the kind of movie I personally love. Like, I love a shaggy hangout, road trip, planes, trains, and automobiles, midnight run kind of movie. You know, like, I, it really, it, 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 it both was an opportunity to be 
the lead of a movie, which I was very happy to be given the opportunity to do. But it also was just like a great movie, a, a, a wonderfully written movie, a beautifully directed movie, and with people that I loved, like Tony Rivolori, you know, Grace Gummer, Thaisa Farmiga, like really Ron Livingston. They got great people. Casey Wilson, incredible. Um, really fun. And I, I'm a sucker for, like, I grew up in the era of Sundance, like, indie film movement. You know, Jim Jarmusch, Nicole Hall of Center, Soderbergh, Tom DiCillo, like, all those kind of, like, 80s era John Sayles indie film movement, you know? Mm -hmm. And so to participate in that, like, to be able to, like, make a movie that I felt like was in that, you know, a small, intimate, but very character-driven movie that did go to Sundance was really exciting to me. And I'd love to continue to do stuff like that. I'd love to continue to dig in on lead roles, complicated characters like that character was. I'd love that. I loved, I loved it on a process level, and I'm really I loved the movie that resulted from it you know I had a great experience and yeah I would love to do more stuff like that and you know but I, but I will say too I I also loved getting to be in John Wick 3 you know yeah. which was you know a whole different thing like what are the things that I really enjoy and I'm very grateful for is that I get to kind of do a bunch of different stuff, you know, that I get to mm -hmm. I get to exercise a bunch of different muscle, uh, both as an actor doing different types of roles in different types of situations, whether it's a network show like The Good Place or a cable show like The League or something like that, or whether it's, you know, a small indie movie like Long Dumb Road or a big blockbuster thing like you know, I, sh I just shot this movie called Infinite in last year uh, in London. That's like a big sci-fi, you know, epic kind of oh, cool. crazy movie. And then I also get to like get on stage with my friends and do like our podcast or do live shows. And all of it kind of to me is the career. Yeah. No, it's incredible, really. When you when you look at it all on paper, it's like the amount of stuff that you've been able to do and different things and, and things that people love. It's 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 really wonderful. Yeah. I love all the stuff that is easy to find. And then also like the little things that I really get a kick out of, like the two episodes of the Chris Gethard show that Sheer and I <laughs> guessed yeah. it on. Or, you know, me and uh Brian Husky and Rob Cordry and Jesse Falcon have made two really weird, surreal Adult Swim specials, Mr. Neighbors House, which are out there that are I'm also super proud of, but are, you know, things that were aired at like three o'clock in the morning on Adult Swim. So the, like, mm -hmm. I, again, there's something kind of cool about right now that a lot is possible, you know, a lot yeah. of anything from little weird projects to giant potential blockbusters. I'm glad that I'm able to kind of try and have access to all of them. Are there things on the books for next year that you're that are sort of like tentatively happening or or things that are There aren't really. Like I will say there were, you know, there were mm -hmm. things that have all been canceled or pushed or are question mm -hmm. marks. So Yeah. Honestly, we'll see. I mean, I think that you know, and now that there is some light at the end of the tunnel and we understand that there will be vaccines and it will roll out and we're going to be in a different this time next year is going to look a lot different than right now. We're going to see things start getting back up and running. I've been offered things that I've said no to just because I don't want to I don't feel safe on a set. Yeah. But no. So right now I don't have anything, you know, that is that I'm looking forward to. Like I'm going to be on set 
you know, January 10th or something like that. Yeah. So far, you'll just be at home. So far, I'm in the closet. <laughs> uh, I'm talking to people. I have recorded a ton of really cool, really fun. There are projects that are coming out next year that are almost all animated. Yeah. I think there's going to be a lot of animation coming out next year, huh? Oh, yeah. I don't think I'm, I can talk about them yet because I don't think they've been announced, but some of them are mm-hmm. fucking super cool. Yeah. That's fun to do. Just do secret animation projects. In oh, your my house. God. Absolutely. You know, <laughs> it's really weird to be like, you know, to go to work. Uh, but yeah. really when I'm done, click off the computer and walk out of my closet and I'm just in my house. Yeah. <laughs> it's really bizarre, but it's a new life. So there is a bunch of fun stuff coming out, but it's all, it's all in that space right now. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to find out what some of that stuff is. Oh yeah. So we end every episode of the podcast by, uh, talking about a time when, uh, a guest has, has really laughed very hard in their life. And so I'm, I'm curious for you. Is there a time that you can think of on set and you've been on so many hilarious sets when you when you really just couldn't stop laughing? Yes, and it's on camera. It's on YouTube, I think, somewhere. Cause it was it was in the gag reel for the league. I don't know what season, but it's the scene in which it's the Scrote Squad episode where I'm punching everybody in the balls. Kroll, it's Kroll and I. It's almost always Kroll and I because I can make (laughs) Kroll break so easily. It's like I can just get him. Um, But Mm -hmm. oftentimes the result of that is then then I break as well. And it's a scene in which he's asking me to protect his balls while simultaneously going after everybody else. So uh, I say, I will protect your balls. I'll be your ballsy guard. Uh, Your balls will be Whitney and I am Kevin Costner. And he says, RIP. And then I have an incredibly large reaction to the death of Whitney Houston, which Rafi did not know about. And then what then happens is, because it's all improvised, right? So I'm improvising all of these lines. So everything (laughs) is a discovery to Nick. So... We start breaking immediately upon this realization that I don't know Whitney's dead. We then cannot shoot this scene. It's the last scene (laughs) of the day. It should be super quick to bang out. We're just sitting in chairs. There's no camera moves. It's nothing. It's so simple. We get laughing so hard that Nick has to leave the... He has to leave. He has to leave the room. I have to do lines alone. We start to <laughs> yell at each other. It, and it's all... They actually cut it uh, into the gag reel yeah. as the footage. And it's very... Uh, that is a time when it was so funny to us. What we were doing was so... Fu- it was also like... There's something about end of the day punchiness, which leads to really just losing it. But that was a, definitely an onset where laughter was like really made it probably take like twice as long to shoot that scene. Okay, ready? Right in. What? Oh my God. Oh no. Whitney's dead? Uh, <laughs> I need to be able to look at you, man. Okay, I'm not going to look at you. So that at least my. Uh, There's a single of me, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. What? Oh my God, oh no! Oh, Whitney's dead? Oh no. <laughs> I just don't know, it's just Friday, it's so tired. Okay. okay, ready, here we go. And we're in it, and what? What? Oh my God. Oh no, Whitney's dead? Oh, how's Michael Jackson taking it? No, you gotta stop, you gotta stop. That's great. Yeah, that's a, it's a classic scene. Yeah, I'm trying to think if there's anything <laughs> else. That show, because that show was improvised, there was a lot of 
really funny stuff that would make us laugh and break because because of because it was discovery because nobody knew what was coming because there was no scripts so it really was just you would say something and you you can watch the league now and you can watch me say lines and just look at other people yeah just to see their look in their eyes and nick is visibly laughing in the scene <laughs> in which i'm saying sometimes i throw up when i come and sometimes i come, whatever <laughs> that whole line about the vanilla candle sometimes yeah he's in the background he is visibly just laughing it's really fun yeah yeah that's such that's so great well Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah. Did we get through it all? I think we did. I think we did it. All right. Did I sound cogent and thoughtful about all your questions? Totally. All right. Great. I think so. Yeah. It's a great, great last new episode of the year. Well, congratulations on on getting through the year. Okay. Thanks so much to Jason Mansukis. That was a blast. If you haven't burned through it already like me, season four of Big Mouth is available to stream on Netflix now. I also highly recommend The Long Dumb Road, which is also on Netflix. And you can subscribe to the hilarious podcast Jason hosts with Paul Shear and June Diane Raphael, How Did This Get Made, wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, and I mentioned to Jason that this is our last new episode of the year, but we do have something very special coming your way next week, so please do look out for that as well. If you have enjoyed The Last Laugh this year, it would mean a ton to me if you could leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.